You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1192. Thanks to Rachel there for filling in the room with a view and... I am Rob Jan Solo. Megan McHugh, our co-host, is taking a well-earned sabbatical at the moment. So, me on my lonesome today for our episode, which is entitled Anti-De-Extinction. I'm not sure how many negatives that implies there. Our podcast title is Quantum Void Pod. And they actually had a pod in uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, so I don't have to look any further there for a podcast title today. There's a few little things kicking around in the genre I wanted to mention, and this is probably a little bit mm, sidetracked here, but not really. If you have been listening to Zero-G all along, well, you, I pity you. I pity you. <laughs> Actually, no, the, uh, you'll be well aware that we have played with a lot of toys on the air over the years and had a look at them and all sorts of things. So, unpacked them, repacked them, thrown them out, broken them in anger. <laughs> but uh, one, some of those toys have come from a shop called Toys R Us, and I've discovered that it's closing down. It's a US-American-based international toy store chain. It traces its uh, formal origins to 1957, and further back to its creator, Charles Lazuras's original children's furniture shops in 1948. And Toys R Us had a 65-year run and at its peak operated around 800 outlets globally. And the company filed for bankruptcy in late 2017 in the US and liquidation has overtaken some of the international branches as well, particularly in the UK and now Australia as the company has now gone into voluntary administration. Now, I'm no business Jan, of course, but uh, reportedly the company is a victim of a number of factors ranging from being owned by private equity to the online boom and rising retail rents. And the 40-plus local stores here in Oz are winding down in the usual way. We've discount everything must-go sales. My first sympathies, of course, to the thousands of employees now looking for new jobs. Never an easy task. As a toy collector, I'm going to particularly miss the chain here as they've always used their US connections to bring in more normally American-only collectibles and action figures especially than the regular department stores did. I know, I know, it's all online now and the world is our geek toy barn. Still, I'm nostalgic, and there was also just something fun about walking into a barn-sized toy warehouse. I kind of felt the same way when borders shut down in regards to books. And if you want bricks and mortar, there's always Toy World and the specialised geek emporiums like Zing, Minotaur, All-Star Comics, Comics R Us, Classic Comics, Pop Culture, Go Figure Collectibles, Science and Swords, Lobos Collectibles, Ultimate Worlds, and so on, without any favouritism there at all, since I've listed most of them. And yeah, the toy sections of the big department stores are still battling on. 
I know that Amazon didn't, doesn't ship directly to Australia now and Amazon Australia hasn't got anywhere near as much stock, but there's still eBay and a lot of specialist collectible companies out there too online, like the, the little toy company in uh, Moorabbin or Icon Collectibles, just to name a couple. So, yeah, it'd be strange not being able to go to that store anymore. Uh, and so, on to other little matters. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp is uh, one of our things we'll be talking about today. And I think I will play our David Bowie track to lead into that for today. And that will be Little Wonder. And that's from the Earthling album. I thought that might be appropriate for Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mr. Bowie here. Hi, this is Fraser Hines. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Look at the size of that thing, Doctor. Yeah, yes, Jamie, that is a big one. Yeah, Mr. Bowie there, giving us a little bit of a riff from his Earthling album, Little Wonder, which introduces the next bit on Zero-G for today. Ant-Man and the Wasp, the 20th Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Look, I actually don't blame you if you've got superhero fatigue. I, of course, am inoculated by massive doses of gamma radiation and comic book madness over the years. So, you know, they can just keep bringing them on as long as they're good. And this one is... Uh, it's directed by Peyton Reed, who did the first Ant-Man and the Wasp movie. Uh, he was uh, brought in, I think, uh, was it replacing Edgar Wright for the original one, but this one is entirely his own film. Now, it's a, a little bit retro in some respects, which is great. Uh, the plot revolves around the loss of Janet Van Dyne, the original superhero, the Wasp, and uh, she and her husband, genius scientist Hank Pym, Michael Douglas, in these films, uh, well, they were trying to stop a nuclear missile or a nuclear missile back in 1987. And the only way to disable it was to shrink so far down to subatomic le levels that they could get in through the seams of this mighty Megadeth machine. Which, they, which she did. Janet managed to do that and ended up lost in the quantum realm, which is kind of a micro, micro universe. And so events proceeded over the years. We've seen the first Ant-Man film. You know that Scott Lang replaces Hank Pym as Ant-Man. And uh, it's now two years after the events of Captain America Civil War, where um, Scott went uh, over to Germany to help some Avengers fight some of the other Avengers. Now, he was captured and imprisoned after that movie and put on home arrest for two years. So it's two years after all of that when Scott's still clomping around in his house with an ankle bracelet on. But it's almost coming to term there. He's just about to be released from that program and then he's going to be on probation. Uh, he's got a security company that he's been running to from home called XCON. And uh, that's um, struggling to make it a success, partly because, well, you know, it's uh, the head honcho is stuck in um, <laughs> home detention. Uh, but his three 
minions, his entourage, the wombats, as Michael Douglas called them, uh, sort of getting there, but also not. It's a bit of a struggle. They're battling there. Uh, also, Scott, of course, has his young daughter, Cassie, from his estranged marriage to worry about, and Michael Douglas's character, and um, Evangeline Lilly, who plays Hope Van Dyne, the Wasp's daughter, also cast in the superhero mould. Uh, they're beginning to become aware that it might be possible that Janet is still alive down there in the micro-universe, in the quantum void. And so this is the procedure that the plot will follow this time round. It's more of a quest one rather than anything else. The first one, of course, was a heist movie. Um, this one has elements of that too, but um, it is more of a quantum quest in some respects. But there is the, the heist element comes in, the, in that uh, people are trying to get their hands once again on Hank Pym's diminutive technology, on the Pym particles that make it all work, all of this shrinking and enlarging, uh, including a character called the Ghost, uh, who actually I think from memory is an Iron Man villain, but we'll let that go. That's, uh, they all, they all um, muck in together to be rascals and ruffians and footpads in the MCU. And uh, not only is that character trying to get their costume mitts upon the technology but there's another guy as well these are the new people in the cast uh well let's go back to the uh the people who wrote the story chris mckenna eric summers paul rudd so one of the actresses had input into the script andrew barrer and gabrielle ferrari now in particular chris mckenna um, who worked on the script of Captain America, The Winter Soldier, did some jokes for that film. But he's also worked on the Lego Batman movies, Spider-Man Homecoming, and Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. And he has a fairly light, deft touch, which is really required for this film, coming in after their very, very heavy-duty uh, Avengers Infinity War. This one lightens things up quite a lot. So... Um, the quantum realm in this film, which uh, I just want to put in a sidebar here, uh, is actually realised in a what I thought was actually a fairly psychedelic Steve Ditko style, which is um, kind of sad in a way, uh, in memory of the, the late great US American artist and writer of comic books. Um, but it was suitably psychedelic in a Fantastic Voyage micro-universe way. So I really enjoyed the realisation of that. You know, you're thinking of... Um, uh, so many movies like Fantastic Four or Inner Space, for example, going back a long way. Um, but they really nailed that in this film. But moving back to the uh, the cast, Paul Rudd, uh, playing Scott Lang once again, um, still plays it with that sort of um, slightly gormless idiocy that is the <laughs> is the uh, the default setting for so many MCU heroes. Um, <clears throat> Star Lord, looking at you. Uh, so in in this case. Um, He's still fairly uh, criminal-based, but uh, in this, this, this movie, he's, I suppose he's even more wanted by the law than he was last time. Uh, but, you know, he's just the average guy in this. He's a, a, a parent. Um, he's trying to be responsible all around, and he's got the additional uh, complication of having a little bit of a romance with his superhero boss's daughter. That's um, Hank Pym's um, daughter, uh, uh, Hope Van Dyne, played by Evangeline Lilly. And I think she's much better playing the Wasp 
in this and um, playing an elf in um, The Hobbit. Although there's nothing really wrong with her portrayal in that. Just didn't really sort of fit into the film. But, yeah, she's great as the Wasp. So we've got a new MCU super heroine in this and that's an enjoyable thing and it's a, a good thing too. And she actually drives the plot and the action quite a bit in this film uh, and I'm very impressed by that. I, I like the way that they've introduced her. They haven't brought her up in another movie. They've just um, they've just had her in this, the first one of these and the second one, I think that just works fine. Uh, it does lead me to think, well, you really could do an A-Force uh, movie with um, female Avengers now. You can use the Black Widow, you've got the Wasp, you will have Captain Marvel, uh, you could have Valkyrie from um, the Thor Ragnarok movie. You could get a pretty decent cast together there, maybe get Pepper Potts in to, uh, to uh, pull them all together uh, with some Stark Industry-related uh, tech or, or whatever, you know. There is a possibility that they could go there. And now... Um, We've also got the uh, the three wombats once again, uh, and they are all terrific. Uh, they're in there for the absolutely essential comic relief that you need in the film. And I wouldn't say they're note perfect, but they are staggeringly note imperfect, and that's what makes it work. Uh, and they, they key into Paul Rudd's own native sense of humour as well. And I, and I think they, they just nailed all of that right to the wall. With very little, little tiny... Um, uh, maybe thumbtacks because you know it's Ant-Man and it's very small and everything uh, we've also got um, uh, uh, one of the villains is played by uh, Walter Goggins um, we saw him in uh, The Hateful Eight he was one of the sheriffs in that uh, and also in um, uh, Predators and Cowboys and Aliens you know I've seen play a few roles around this sort of thing uh, we've got Michelle Pfeiffer uh, playing her f first superhero role as such a, since um, Catwoman in the Batman movies back in the 80s. And uh, I think she's going to make a fine wasp with some interesting powers. Are they still going to call her the wasp? Because, you know, uh, her daughter is the wasp. Are we going to go start playing with some of the alter ego identities that you can get in these things? You know, is there going to be like... Uh, Oh, gosh, there's so many of these ones that they could play with with the Wasp in, in character names. Well, they might just not use her as much. She's a, she's a great presence with um, Michael Douglas, so you feel cast back to the 80s. Uh, and, of course, they do some of that in this. There is a retro sense in this movie. And as they did with uh, Robert Downey Jr. in um, uh, one of the uh, Avengers movies, uh, they also managed to euthan the characters very effectively. Um, quite seamlessly, really, when you think about it. It's a, an amazing new technology they've got. Uh, we also have um, Lawrence Fishburne playing Bill Foster, whose name should be familiar if you're a Marvel Comics fan. Uh, Bill Foster is a character called Goliath. Uh, but he, Lawrence has also played um, the voice of uh, Norrin Rad, the Silver Surfer, in Rise of the Silver Surfer, an undistinguished MC pre, sorry, proto MCU movie, but um, I'd hold that against him. And he's also been Perry White in Batman vs. Superman movie too. So this is not his first superhero rodeo. And Lawrence Fishburne is in fact a big fan of comic books as well. So that kind of plays into uh, the way he does it. Let's have a little bit of a track here from the 
Ant-Man soundtrack album. It's called It Ain't Over Till the Wasp Lady Stings. Uh-huh. And it's by Christoph Beck, the um, composer who uh, Joss Whedon favoured in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and other elements of his work. This is Danny Strong. I play Jonathan, creator of the internet, international man of mystery, and star of the Matrix trilogy, and Jono the Vampire Slayer. You're listening to 3 R FM Radio. Ha! It's one of my better inventions. <laughs> that reminds me that um, Lawrence Fishburne was, of course, uh, Morpheus in the Matrix series as well, which certainly counts as a superhero movie of one sort or another. Just chatting about the Ant-Man and the Wasp movie, the 20th Marvel Cinematic Universe film. And yes, you do have to stay till the end of the credits. Um, there are sequences that you uh, may want to see, especially one in particular. Uh, hmm, I'm not saying this film uh, is set two years after the events of Captain America Civil War and it's set just before Infinity War. Hmm. Okay, there are so many delights in this film. As I was saying, it's a, it's a, a nicely light sort of fluffy movie, although I did actually find myself tearing up at one stage. Must have had an ant fly into my eye accidentally or something. Uh, you know, this is like Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer and it's like 80s. Uh, you know, there's that thing that going on there. I just love that. Uh, <laughs> um, one little thing that um, <laughs> amazed me, uh, one stage they rolled up to a place that um, was a bit isolated and, uh, and they played that sound effect, you know, the wolf howling sort of going, oh, that you hear in all horror movies. I think, What's going on there? They're supposed to be in, like, you know, <laughs> San Francisco. Are there wolves around there? I suppose it's possible. I don't know. I guess it makes sense. But it's that, that cliched sound effect that uh, cracked me up when I heard it. Sometimes you just get taken out of the universe of a film when they do that. The procedural of Ant-Man and the Wasp is great this time. You know, they've got the shrinking and enlarging thing down pat. Uh, they introduced some new little wrinkles on that, although, of course, we've seen the uh, the giant man effect being used before in um, Captain America Civil War, where they, they broke that one, uh, rather to the shock of Peyton Reed, who's sort of thinking, well, um, there goes my big reveal, quite literally. <laughs> but they still managed to have a lot of fun with that, as well as all of the micro sort of stuff. So saying before, the uh, the actual realisation of the quantum void, uh, the, the micro universe is extremely well done. Uh, a lot of fun to engage with. They even had some tardy grades in there, Shades of Star Trek Discovery and also the just general street level stuff that they're doing because Ant-Man does actually feel like a kind of a street level hero or <laughs> maybe just below the curb size at some stages. Um, you know, those uh, cars that are made small, buildings that are made small and large, there's a whole bunch of things going in there. Even, even to that old trick of um, dressing the actor in large clothing, uh, to make him seem little. Uh, you know, it's just great little stuff there, quite literally. Uh, which, come to think of it, it's a little bit hobbity. So Evangeline Lilly would probably be at home with that too. There is there is chemistry between um, Rudd and Lilly that it works quite uh, effectively and convincingly. I actually am more convinced by it than the, um, the relationship in, uh, say, Jurassic World uh, for, between the leads. But 
you know, and I just can't speak highly enough of um, Lily's physicality for this role. Um, she does a lot of uh, great work when she's not being doubled or CG'd uh, in terms of convincing us that this is an actual person who's trained and skilled at doing martial arts and so on. Uh, and acrobatics too, all very important. Uh, the ants are cute, as they always are in um, relationship to uh, in relation to, um, to Ant-Man. Uh, and... Um, I just thought the procedural was, again, spot on. It's not too much that I can say against this film, apart from I felt maybe there was uh, some stuff in, in the uh, the last reel that came out a little bit too pat. Uh, but, you know, that's a very <laughs> microscopic kind of uh, observation, given the fact that this is just a fun movie. Uh, so... There are some good um, parental things in it too, which are quite touching. Uh, you just think, oh, this is so cool. Uh, and, and it's all played quite well by Rudd, who really invests in this role. He's, um, he's made this one his own, I think. Okay, that's Ant-Man and the Wasp. It's out now. Big, huge little picture. And it's just the toned Marvel film we needed after the apocalyptic events of Avengers Infinity War. So, yeah, but you do have to stay to the end of the credits there. All right, now I wanted to play a track here um, from the uh, Amazing Spider-Man number two. Uh, that was the um, or the uh, the first bunch of Spider-Man movies, if you don't count the old um, telly movies based on the television show and that sort of thing, uh, or anything animated. Uh, and it's called My Enemy, and it's by Hans Zimmer and the Magnificent Six from the Spider-Man 2 original motion picture soundtrack album. And I wanted to play this uh, in memoriam of the late, great US-American comic book artist and writer, Steve Ditko. Hi, this is Jeff Wayne, composer and producer of my musical version of H.G. Wells' classic science fiction story, The War of the Worlds, supporting the War on Terror. That's T-E-R-R-A on zero-G. On three triple oola <laughs> FM. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think I misidentified that track before I played it. So I said it was from the first bracket of Spider-Man movies. Actually, from the uh, the second lot, the Andrew Garfield ones. Hans Zimmer with my enemy. <laughs> I thought it was really good. It's like lots of little voices there. At least that's the way I heard it. Did you? Hmm. All right, now we're back on Zero G. And um, I want to say how sad I am at the passing of the US American comic book artist and writer Steve Ditko, who was born in Pennsylvania on November 2nd in 1927 and was found dead in his Manhattan apartment the other day, 90 years old. Ditko was inspired by Prince Valiant and Batman and the spirit in comic book form uh, early on in his life, um, but enlisted in the US Army in 1945 and did 
military service in post-war Germany. And actually, uh, while he was there, they put him to good use and had him drawing comic strips for um, the army newspaper. When he got out, he studied under Batman artist Jerry Robinson and in 1953 had worked his way up to being in Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's studio as an inker. Uh, that doesn't mean that he was a South American native. He was a guy who would take the pencil sketches produced by the other artists and then do the ink overlays on them so that they could be printed properly. Ditko has an amazing CV. In terms of creating characters, there's over 100 attributed to him across multiple comic book houses, including Charlton Comics, uh, Warren, um, that would be Eerie and Creepy magazine, uh, Ace and Atlas, which of course is a precursor to Marvel, and I think he uh, probably met Stan Lee there. He did Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, and their considerable posse of friends and gallery of rogues. Uh, when he was working at DC, he created the Hawk and the Dove and Captain Atom, amongst others. And just if I might mention one of my favourites, he's actually the guy behind the creation of Squirrel Girl, released the artist back in 1992, uh, when she first met um, Iron Man. Uh, Ditko was an incredible surrealistic artist as well. Uh, mentioned him before in context of the micro-universe in Ant-Man, but of course he's well known for all of those strange, literally Doctor Strange backdrops and oh, just amazing creations that would spill out across the page and indeed across multiple dimensions in the 60s, 70s Doctor Strange comics. Wow, I can't stress how unusual those drawings are. Uh, I'll actually have to put a few pictures up on the Triple uh, R website at RR. Rrr.org.au, just so you can check those out a little bit later on. Now, he also um, did the pencils for uh, an Iron Man feature in Tales of Suspense in 1963 and 64. And when he first worked on it, um, he was the, uh, um, the guy who, uh, along with Jack Kirby, um, created the modern red and golden armour look for Iron Man beyond that first appearance one. So pretty important to me, really, when you think about it. Uh, he was also, and this is odd, but uh, a supporter of uh, Ayn Rand's objectivism philosophy and did some illustrations and comic books for that too. A little bit um, off-centre there, but that's the way it was. Uh, and, you know, there's just so much that can be attributed to Ditko in all of the comic books across all of the publishing houses that he is definitely uh, a worthy receiver of so many industry awards, including the Eisner Award and so on, uh, and the Jack Kirby one. Although he had a, a kind of a funny um, reflection upon awards, he thought that they... He's quoted as saying that they stole the... Uh, the light from comic book artists a little bit and um, had been known for handing one back that he'd uh, received um, in his absence at one stage. Uh, and, of course, we all know that there was uh, a controversy about Ditko receiving proper credit for all of his creations, uh, a bit of argy-bargy backwards and forwards between him and Stan Lee and other characters as well. Uh, 
and I'm not really sure exactly how much financial benefit he derived from some of those characters in later life. There are stories about um, not receiving uh, royalty checks and so on, but, you know, it's kind of convoluted. Don't have time to go into that here now. So I'd like to just say farewell to the late, great artist and writer Steve Ditko. That actually feels like the, the end of an era almost to me. Um, but, you know, there will be many more eras to come. And the characters that he's created are continuing echoing on into comic book eternity, um, including Squirrel Girl, who's gone from strength to strength and now has her own book. Ah, yes. All right, so we'll play a small track here, um, again from uh, one of the MCU movies, uh, Master of the Mystic End Credits, which is by Michael Giacchino from the Doctor Strange movie, original motion picture soundtrack. And you know how we were playing the uh, the Ant-Man track before about the Wasp? That had a very 60s feel to it, 1960s feel, which is appropriate for the creation of the Wasp character, and so too for Doctor Strange. This one also has a, a 1960s feel, and also kind of uh, makes me chuckle when I remember the... Um, the uh, end credit scenes of The Incredibles 2, which also had 1960s superhero themes uh, re- in a retro mode. In the marmalade forest, forest. between the make-believe trees. G'day, I'm Brett McKenzie. I played an in elf in Lord of the Rings. My dad played Ellen Dole with King. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. And I have one thing to say. My name is Figwood the Elf. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Yeah, but not today. Michael Giacchino's Master of the Mystic End Credits <laughs> from the Doctor Strange original soundtrack album there. All right, now into Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which is, of course, the fifth of that franchise. I don't think they're doing anywhere as near as well as the um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, even though dinosaurs are a wondrous thing, and I can still remember that incredible sense of wonder when I first saw one of the dinosaurs wandering across the screen in the original Jurassic Park back in 1993, of course, based on Michael Crichton's novel, the same name, Steven Spielberg at the helm back then. Well, uh, one of my some of my reservations for the um, original Jurassic Park continuation, Jurassic World, uh, in back in uh, what are we, two thousand and fifteen, I think, yeah, um, was that uh, it all seemed uh, a bit ludicrous that anyone would actually try and rebuild a failed park like Jurassic Park, considering how badly and how many people were killed in the original. <laughs> horror theme park ride uh but well you know now we're um post trump uh inauguration can we really actually say that there's any limit to rat baggery and <laughs> insanity and uh nonsensical ideas no not really nevertheless they've rebooted it again and this is the fifth movie and we've got the dinosaurs threatened on the now abandoned island of Isla Nublar by volcanic eruptions. The it gets kind of convoluted. The um, the dinosaurs who have been de-extincted by being created in the lab 
and now faced with a further extinction. <laughs> so it's all a, a stinky sort of a problem there. Some people think that it should just be left to boil. Uh, other people think that the dinosaurs rebooted version 2.0 need to be uh, preserved and evacuated. We've got the usual themes of greedy capitalism woven in with militaristic mercenaries and so on. Uh, environmentalism as well comes into play too. It's directed by uh, Juan Bayona, the Spanish film director who gave us The Orphanage in 2007 and also in 2016 the fantasy drama A Monster Calls and has done a couple of episodes of the television series Penny Dreadful as well. Writers include Derek Connolly and Colin Trevorrow, who both have um, safety not guaranteed in <laughs> their entirely appropriate uh, back catalogue, but also Kong, Skull Island and Pacific Rim Uprising in the case of Derek Connolly. So we've got some people here who have a few moves, know what they're doing, and indeed um, this movie does play well as a horror movie on Bayona's part. He's uh, got some Scenes in this which uh, I guarantee will give little kids nightmares. You might want to think twice. There's, it's in the trailer, this one, so it's not really a spoiler, but there's a scene where uh, one of the dinosaurs is creeping into the bedroom of one of the kids who's hiding under the covers. Uh, that ain't going to cut it, <laughs> really. Uh, you'll need something a bit more protective, as indeed has Claire Deering, the Bryce Dallas Howard character. This time, instead of high heel boots, she's wearing... So, sorry, high-heeled uh, shoes. She's wearing boots, good solid boots. They make a real point of focusing in on that because people were going, get real, as she get, went running madly around the resort in the first movie of this uh, sequence of Jurassic Park. Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of chemistry between Bryce Har Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt playing, once again, his uh, dinosaur whisperer character. But, you know, they get along reasonably well. And that's what I think about this film. It sort of gets there where it's kind of going. We see Toby Jones appear as yet another villain character. He seems to be ubiquitous now here, Dr. Zola. Maybe he's been cloned or something. Uh, James Cromwell is a, is a patriarchal uh, investor, a, a rich guy who wants to save the dinosaurs. Jeff Goldblum pops up as a kind of a narrating uh, thematic character. Look, there's themes in this that remind me of aliens. They're trying to weaponize the dinosaurs. There's some, uh, there's some dialogue about gene power and how it's the big thing and how we must use it responsibly. Some themes where these have been developed before in Jurassic Park 2, particularly The Lost World. And we're actually in, a, in the territory now of Harry Adam Knight's book, Carnosaur, which you might want to look up. Uh, it's John Brosnan, actually, is the, uh, the pen was um, the writer of that with the pen name of Harry Adam Knights. Um, but um, the, uh, the dinosaurs being moved over to the mainland and having further issues there. There is going to be a sequel to this one. Uh, there's a volcanic action in this, which is such a dinosaur cliche. It's really just used as a device to get them off the island and to create a massive dinosaur stampede, which is worth the price of admissions. I would actually have liked to have seen this in, at IMAX in 3D, but I didn't get a chance to. Uh, and there's some poignant moments in it too. It's not the worst of the Jurassic Park movies, 
but um, it's certainly not the best. And I feel a little tired watching this one. Do people feel the same way watching superhero movies? I don't know about that. I'll have to think about that. I shall ponder as I play you this poignant end track, which is um, really one of the great tracks from the movie and, and actually one of the good moments too. Pavan for a Dead Aptosaurus by, again, Michael Giacchino. That's it for Zero G today. Thank you very much. And we will go out with this track and uh, make way for Joe Brunetic and Astral Glamour. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.